I talk about the fact that there should be more women entrepreneurs and there should be more women venture capitalists and I support and diversity, not just gender diversity, but other diversity. And I try to support that through my actions. And I think it's appropriate given my role in Silicon Valley that if I have an opinion about that, I should be vocal about that. Thanks for pressing play. That voice you just heard is Silicon Valley legend Heidi Roizen. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follier Different, where we aspire to have real, different conversations with legendary people about business, marketing, and life. Heidi Roizen is um, an extraordinarily accomplished entrepreneur. She was the former head of developer relations at Apple, and she's been one of the most legendary high-profile venture capitalists in Silicon Valley for many years. She was uh, recently honored by the Financial Women of San Francisco as Financial Woman of the Year, and many people call her Silicon Valley's greatest connector. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. There's lots to take away for your uh, personal life and your professional life. Um, there are many people in Silicon Valley and in the entrepreneurial ecosystem who would pay just about anything to sit down and have lunch or uh, dinner with Heidi. And um, I think you're going to find it incredibly valuable, fun, and fantastic. Go to Lockhead.com, check out the show notes for this episode. And our friends at uh, Oracle NetSuite want to remind you that serious entrepreneurs and finance teams run on NetSuite. That's because NetSuite is the number one cloud uh, business system. NetSuite offers a full picture of all of your finances in one place in real time from your phone or your desktop. And that's why NetSuite customers grow. As a matter of fact, three times faster than the S&P 500, and you can too. To schedule your free demo right now and receive a free guide called The 7 Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, go to netsuite.com different and get your free, free guide, 7 Key Strategies to Grow Profits, and get a free demo of NetSuite today. That's netsuite.com different. And my friends at Splunk, want to help you bring data to everything, every question, every decision, and every action. Learn how to lead your digital transformation today at splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything. That's S-P-L-U-N-K dot com slash D, the number two, E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. rescue dogs you know they are uh they are eternally grateful for the fact that you come and get them and they are uh you know they they have broad genetic diversity which generally makes them healthier animals and seems like a good thing to do and i love just going to the pound and picking them out so i have two new ones this year yeah, I was uh i was hanging out on your twitter page and uh ah I yes you saw my babies that. Yes, they're lovely. And I have a theory. It sounds like maybe you do too. I'm curious. So my wife, Carrie, and I rescued two kitty cats two years ago. Mm -hmm. And they were feral. Like they, they call them sort of farm cats or barn cats. Yeah. Um, and the, the Humane Society has a program where they uh, adopt them out typically to people, you know, farmers or people who own warehouses. And they're not intending them to be pets. And of course, today they sleep in the bed. Right. Of course. Yes. And so I'm curious, you sort of alluded to the fact, you think the dogs know you rescued them? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I think, uh, I, I don't know a lot about cats, but I know a fair bit about dogs. And I think that, you know, dogs have evolved to have this very symbiotic relationship with humans. And they, I think they understand a lot more than we give them credit for understanding. And I genuinely think, you know, both these dogs, when we brought them home from the pound for the first two days, they were super quiet and kind of just took it all in and and were you know we in fact we worried they were mute or something because they didn't they didn't do or say much and boy that is not a problem any longer but i think they're very aware of their surroundings and their situations and i think they start to figure out like wow this is pretty good 
You know, the food's better here and the bed's softer. It doesn't smell bad. And, you know, goodness gracious, this, I, I got lucky. I do, I mean, I sense that they are, that they, they appreciate the change in their circumstances. Now, of course, I think dogs also have hedonistic adaptation. And at this point, they're like, what do you mean I'm not having people food for dinner? What's this kibble stuff? You know, so. Yeah, they 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 are. I, I maybe maybe I'm I'm uh, anthropomorphizing a little bit too much, but I I do think that dogs are like little mini people. Well, you know, so these kitty cats that we rescued, I, I, it's so amazing that you say this, and I saw you kind of alluding to this, and and I think it's a, I don't know anything about cats. I never had cats. I've, I'm only able to have them because of I've been on these allergy shots. But anyway, um, I swear to God, they know we rescued them. And I think it's exactly the same thing you said, that it's way better living in the house than living outside. And they don't Absolutely. have to worry about skunks and raccoons and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, Absolutely. And even though cats are pretty cheeky, um, there's a big part of their behavior that's like, hey, thanks for rescuing our asses. Yeah, yeah. No, I think they do. I think they, they also appreciate it. Yeah, well, I, I, it's so funny to know that you have that theory because I have that theory, but I just thought maybe I was crazy or... We're just projecting what I wanted, but maybe we we're mass hysteria. We're all, all us pet lovers are crazy. <laughs> yes. Now, um, I'm very curious about. Uh, there's lo- lots I'd love to talk to you about, and I hope we can touch on amazing things in your career. But I'm I'm curious to start, if you don't mind, with um, sort of how you're thinking about the future of uh, of our industry, both the, on the venture capital side, and of course, most importantly on the entrepreneurship and startup side, how you're thinking about the next five to 10 years? Well, I think this is a real golden era for entrepreneurship. I mean, I think especially if you talk about the moment that we're in in time, first of all, it's a, it's a seller's market when it comes to early stage equity. There are a lot of sources of capital in the market. It's very competitive. Um, there, is, there are just so many different avenues for, for funding that I think are just phenomenal. There are so many uh, technological breakthroughs that that can be built upon, whether that is, um, you know, networking or whether that's processing power or whether that's sensors, devices, GPS, uh, you know, next gen VR technologies, the, the, you know, the ubiquitous platforms that we have around us. There is, there is so much to build on. There's so much raw material, cloud computing. I mean, when you think about the kinds of businesses you can start today for pennies that used to cost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in the past, that's a real positive. I mean, the only negative about that is competition, right? Everyone else can do it too. But there, there is just, there are, and, and, and let's face it, there are so many big, interesting problems for us to continue to solve. And, and, and I, I think that certainly, and certainly in my world, um, most of what I do is not what I would call straight technology. You know, the, the investments, the kind of companies that I work with, whether that's Zooks or Planet or Memphis Meets, you know, they are, they are, they're not software companies, right? They, they, they all have a lot of software. <laughs> software is deeply involved in, the, in, in what we do. But they really are solving problems of mobility and food and making the world's information actionable in a way that has never been done before. You know, those are the kinds of things that we're doing that are, that are very different from, I, I don't think that people think technology when they think, how am I going to get to work today or what am I going to eat, uh, for example. And those are the kinds of things that we're now applying technology and traditional technology investing to solving those problems. So it's, I think it's a super exciting time. But you're, those are technology companies, but maybe not, you know, software and hardware companies the way we used to think of them, right? You have sort of maybe, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like big T technology companies. Yeah. You know, I do think it's interesting that today every company is a technology company, right? I mean, whether it's how they enter, I mean, for the most part, how they interact with their customers, how they distribute their products, how they garner feedback, how they handle customer service, technical support, logistics, supply chain, internally HR systems, uh, financial systems. I mean, every company is, is, 
is deep in technology. Now, some of these companies are also creating cutting edge, leading breakthrough technology themselves. But for example, you know, like take Memphis Meats, for example, the technology, the breakthroughs we're having there are more biology than technology, right? It's, it's immortal cell line development, it's media development, it's bioreactor development, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's that kind of stuff, right? It's, it's not code. Yeah, but I would imagine the application of information technology for the development of, of Memphis Meats is probably pretty pretty critical, I gotta believe. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and you know, you are using software and computing technology to 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 you know to generate, to um progress, to uh, document um the the other technological advances that you're making. So I, I wanted to talk to you about them anyway. And so maybe we could go there now. Um, sure. Kind of a fascinating category, a fascinating company. Uh, I think some think somewhat controversial. So uh, could you sort of explain to me, you know, uh, I'm not that smart and I drink too much. Explain to me <laughs> what the company does and, sure. and what your investment thesis is and kind sure. of bring me bring well me i i love uh, memphis meats it's an incredible company founded um, you know the great founder ceo uma Valetti, uh, a former heart surgeon a vegan heart surgeon who decided uh, one day well why can't we grow meat parts to eat just like we grow heart parts to sew into people that, that's my simple boneheaded way of putting it but you know, okay, the, I, I mean, track with that though, Heidi. Thank you. <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, it, it's a fun question. You know, when you go and you, you know, you talk about a lot of technology pro products, you go talk about, you know, the joke is, can your mother understand what you do? I mean, the nice thing about this is, you know, you go in an audience, you say, how many people have consumed protein in the last 24 hours? Oh, pretty much everyone, right? So first of all, big market, huge market, multi-trillion dollar market um, in terms of meat. Uh, globally, uh, meat, uh, you know, meat is a very inefficient thing to create. It takes roughly on the order of 25 calories of input to create a calorie of edible cow, for example. So just that alone creates this, you know, we've all heard about it, the greenhouse gases and the, and the use at land use and water use and, 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 and the fact that a lot of the vegetation that is grown is grown for animal consumption ultimately so we can eat that animal it's just it's not a very efficient way to create meat and then you know various people have various opinions on whether the whole process of raising and slaughtering animals is something that they want to support through their purchases as consumers so i think this is a really fascinating opportunity you know, we saw it we said very big market there is a natural inefficiency that if it could be solved, could create a situation where you are making meat with far fewer caloric input components and you're not raising and slaughtering animals, which has many benefits, including the fact that a lot of the contamination of meat occurs in the slaughter and transport process. And, um, and anyway, wouldn't it be cool to just grow your meat, you know, that, that, uh, to eat. So I think it's a, it's a super fascinating area of, you know, cell-based meat, I think is a really fascinating area. And, you know, our thesis was that the time was right now to be able to do this. And, and, you know, again, remember venture capitalists, the great thing about being a venture capitalist is we don't have to actually invent this stuff really awesome entrepreneurs who are way smarter than we are come up with these ideas. We just have to make sure they want to come talk to us and that we can validate sufficiently what they're doing through our own, um, you know, research, learning theses, whatever it is that you do to have a prepared mind for this sort of stuff. <laughs> so, you know, so in this case, we believed in it. We looked at a lot of different companies in the space doing alternative protein and for various reasons believe that cell base was the one that was the most appealing to us and believe that Uma and his team were the, the, the team we believed in the most and the company has made great advances uh, in, in terms of this progress and I think you'll hopefully be seeing actual product from them 
you know, I, I hate to predict, yeah. but, but in a not I unreasonable mean, amount of time. <laughs> yeah. So, so in our lifetimes for sure. And maybe within a couple our, years, within a yeah. couple years. And of course the fundamental question, well, there'll be lots of fundamental questions, but the interesting thing, well, first of all, what I find fascinating about it, I mean, at first blush, I look at it and it's a little spooky sounding, right? Yeah. Then you start to think about it and you go, hmm, why couldn't we do that? Right. Yeah. And then yeah. I start to think about it further and I think, well, many, if not almost all of the exponential breakthroughs, at least to some people, seem strange or weird or maybe even off-putting or improbable in the beginning. Yes, absolutely. And so, the fun part about it is like way to way to go for something truly exponential. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the funny thing about this is again, you know, people say to me, oh my God, how can you eat that stuff? And I say, have you read the label on the hot dog you're eating? Like, how can you eat that stuff? Right. Um, you know, the interesting thing about cell-based meat, it is it's meat. It is cellularly meat. It is actual like you know, the old joke, it tastes like chicken. Well, it tastes like chicken because it is chicken. It's actual chicken. Now, it came from a chicken cell. It didn't come from a, a slaughtered chicken, but it is actually the same stuff. So to me, eating cell-based meat is less weird than eating meat that has been created from other things and processed to taste like meat. And I, you know, I'm not saying that's bad. I mean, there's a market yeah. for that too. But it, I would, I would sort of argue that I suspect that our bodies are, you know, it's like taking the generic version of a drug. You know, at, at the at the at some level, it's the same stuff, and this is this is the same stuff. So, very excited about it. Well, and it does seem like Beyond Meat and some of these other companies um, are, even though we've had meat alternatives for a long time, and soy burgers and veggie burgers and tofurkey and all this yeah. stuff, right? Um, yeah. It seems like in the last several years, there, there has been a major step forward in that category as well. And that maybe, um, um, you tell me that some of these companies- Oh, oh absolutely. I think those companies are great companies that have really led the way. And I think that the point is, and, and, and by the way, I've, I've, I lived for over a year as a vegan. I have a, a one child, one of my children has been vegan for over a decade now. Um, and, and I think that it used to be that in order to be vegan, you were compromising on taste, on mouthfeel, you know, on basically the, the sort of the pleasurable aspects of the food that you were eating if you were a person who liked meat. And I think that the breakthrough really in terms of what Impossible and Beyond and, you know, these companies have done is in understanding that people don't want to compromise, that I want to eat something that actually tastes and looks and feels like a hamburger. And I don't want to eat something that doesn't really taste very good when I eat it. And so I applaud the, you know, I think that there, again, I think there's room in the market for plenty of alternatives for plenty of different ways to satisfy people's tastes and people's desires regarding, you know, whatever ethical components there are to how people think about their food consumption. And so, yes, I think there have been some, you know, there they're leading the way and we are all together making a better market, which, you know, which is often what happens in, in kind of, <coughs> excuse me, in these breakthrough technology areas. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. So I'm curious um, how you think about making investments today, how you decide to do a Memphis meet and some of the other things you're currently involved with. And uh, obviously there's a lot you don't decide to do. And so I'm curious sort of, <laughs> Uh, tune me into uh, Heidi's lens today. Yeah, well, I think it's funny being a venture capitalist because you have to be an optimist to be a venture capitalist. And yet 99% of the meetings you take end up with a no. Does that, so you have to like be this super- Yeah, you have to be a little wacky to do this. I mean, I'm very fortunate because, you know, the group I work with at Threshold, they're all very- um, you know, there's, there's a, a wonderful team with, with, you know, decades, decades, probably a hundred years of experience. If you look around the members of the team that are making these decisions and, and each team member has a fairly wide, uh, uh, you know, free reign to come up with what are the theses around which they are going to go and hunt for opportunity, whether that's around next gen cloud computing or, 
things that are enabled by AI in healthcare or next-gen food, whatever it is. So we, as a team, we work both individually and collaboratively to come up with the areas where we believe there is opportunity for um, you know, either brand new nascent areas or disruption of other things that are inherently in some way inefficient or problematic. And so we have a great team of, of you know, about a dozen of us between the investment team and the, and the team that supports them, um, you know, in, in terms of, of, of looking at investments and interacting with those investments, uh, potential investments. And we have robust conversations. We meet a lot of entrepreneurs. If we're going to look at a, at a space, I have this analogy I use and I say, you know, venture capital, if you, if you think venture capital is like beach combing, right? You know, you're just walking along and you look down at your feet and you're like, oh, that's a pretty shell. I think I'll pick that up and put it in my pocket. I would argue that's not the way to get the best shell. Instead, if you're a deep sea diver and you say, well, I'm going to research, I'm going to, I'm going to know where these shells grow, I'm going to go dive down to where these shells are and I'm going to go look at them all and I'm going to find the best one because this is the shell I want. I think you're going to make a better decision. And so I think that, that you know, it's a combination, right? It's a combination of being opportunistic, right? When the right shell washes up on shore, you got to figure out how to, how to know that. It is also being a deep sea diver and understanding where to go and hunt. And, you know, look, the best entrepreneurs, they get to choose who backs them. Money is, money is, <laughs> there's a lot of money floating around, particularly in Silicon Valley. And so we are in competition with other backers for the best deals. And I think that the way you win those deals is by, for lack of a better way to put it, being a good human, showing up, doing your homework, being respectful, trying to be helpful, trying, you know, I, entrepreneurship is a really hard job. The last thing an investor should do is make it even harder. So that's the attitude that, that I and my partners bring to the table is, is it, it truly is an honor to work with the companies who choose to work with us. And those you entrepreneurs have harder jobs than, than I have. I was an entrepreneur for more than a decade. I ran a software company. And so I know actually a recovering entrepreneur. Exactly. So I'm, you know, I am super respectful of entrepreneurs and I know that my worst day at work doesn't look anywhere as bad as even their average day at work, right? The amount of pressure they're under, the amount of difficult decisions, managing the people, those are just super, super hard things to do. And so we try to show up every day thinking, how can we support that entrepreneur and how can we help them achieve their goals? And, you know, it kind of sounds like motherhood and apple pie, I'm sure, but, and it sounds like something every investor should do, but I've seen a lot of investors who don't actually do that. Well, and to your point, um, and I've become a little bit, maybe even too militant about this, but, <laughs> um, you know, I had a conversation a little while ago with Randy Comazar and uh -huh. I love Randy, you know, we were, there's been a lot of change in venture capital over the last 20 or so years. Um, and one of the things that I think, at least this is how I think about it. You tell me how you think about it. I think there's a core group of uh, venture capitalists who in the beginning were material in building Silicon Valley, of course, by supporting the entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I view the VC business in the world that you and I live as a craft business. Mm -hmm. It's akin to, you know, I'm a surfer. I live in Santa Cruz and you can go and you can buy a mass manufactured surfboard or you can go get a hand-shaped board. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one guess as to what I ride. <laughs> yes. And uh, hand, shape, hand shaping boards is an inherently unscalable business. Now, they do use technology to enable it. So it's gotten, it's progressed. But the reality is a master shaper is, is, a, is, is, is an, somewhat of an artist. Definitely what we used to call a craftsperson or a craftsman. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never been a VC, but having worked around them and seen some of the greats, it strikes me that at least in the world we're in, I, I don't know about some other worlds, maybe it's different, 
that the most legendary VCs are craft VCs like you are, that really bring a way more to the table than just money. And that, and I guess here's the distinction in my mind. You are one of those people who has a massive reputation in our world for being somebody that partners with entrepreneurs to create value over time. And I see there's been a massive influx of money into Silicon Valley that are more, if I would put it politely, value capture investors as opposed <laughs> to value creation investors. Yeah. But well, I mean, first think? of all, thank you very much. I'm, I'm deeply honored that you would say that. And it, it, uh, I think it's a very important thing to be. And I'm not saying that VCs that are, as you call them, value capturers, I, I think, you know, hey, look, if you can go out and capture value and do nothing and somehow people still want to work with you and limited partners make oodles of money because of that, well, I guess more power to you. But that's not, I, I don't know what my place in the ecosystem would be if that was how I approached it. The way I approach it is, like I said, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm the luckiest person in the world because I get to work with people like Uma at Memphis or, or Jesse at, at Zooks. And I get to help these incredible entrepreneurs. And, and look, 99% of what they need to do they know how to do it better than I do. But 1% of the time, I've got something to add because I've been doing this for a long time and I've done it over, over dozens of companies. And so every once in a while, I can help them out and, and I can help them with something in a safe, you know, I am, I am the safe environment. I, some of the people I work with joke, it's like the Heidi hotline, right? They can call me anytime, day or night. They can email me. They can text me. I am going to be there. If you need to talk to me for an hour and a half because you need to sort through something that maybe my experience can be helpful, that you, you know, that's part of what you get when you take our money. And sometimes, frankly, what the person needs is, is it's, a, it's that old adage, it's lonely at the top. What the CEO or the entrepreneur sometimes needs is just to vent for an hour about some stupid thing that happened that they can't show that face at work and they just want to talk to someone who can say, I hear you. Yeah, that sucks. You know, you're going to be okay. We'll laugh about this someday. You know, when we write the book about this company, we'll put this part in. And, and just, just be there to be helpful. But, you know, another one of my, my analogies is I joke that, that, you know, being a venture capitalist is a little bit like being those little flippers at the bottom of a pinball machine, right? The pinballs is zooming around and all these things are happening. And every once in a while, the ball comes down in contact with your flipper. And if you can somehow flip it into the right trajectory, even though you don't, you know, your points of contact are pretty small. If you can do that, you can change the score. And that's kind of how I see the role. And, and by the way, that isn't always being, you know, the super happy, helpful hotline cheerleader. That is also sometimes the tough love of saying, you know, I don't think this is working or I don't think that person is working. Or I think that, you know, I've seen something out there in the market that leads me to believe that we may not be going in the right direction or, you know, it isn't all sweetness and light and, and helpful hotline. Sometimes it is tough love or whatever you want to call it that you have to do. So there's so much in there I want to go back to, but I want to make an overall comment, particularly as sort of the tone uh, of the first part of your comments, which is just something I notice. Legends are crazy immodest. And uh, it, I just, it's a pattern I see. And we live in a world where there's a lot of people who brag, but when you first start off telling me about that, you make this in small difference to these companies, you're Heidi Rosen. <laughs> <laughs> but like, come on, at some level, you got to know who you are, right? Oh, I mean, I, yeah. but what I love is whether it's you or Bill Walton or Carrie Walsh, or, you know, I've been lucky to have a lot of pretty extraordinary people and, you know, billionaire entrepreneurs and, and so forth and so on. I, I'm always amazed at how the most accomplished people are um, generally very immodest about the, who they are and the contribution they make. 
Well, you know, again, thank you. And, and I think, I mean, look, I'm still learning. I mean, every day I, I, I make plenty of mistakes and I screw up lots of things. And I have, again, the good fortune of learning. And luckily, I've done more things right than wrong. But it would be ridiculous of me to sit here and say that I know how to do everything or everything always works right under me or it's because of me things happened. I mean, I play a small and I'm happy to have, you know, a small but sometimes impactful part of these companies. And, and, and hey, we're all learning. And it, once you, when you stop learning, you may as well die, right? So yes. I'm just happy that I get to learn about all these really cool new things that these guys are doing. The other thing that's sort of interesting I want to ask you about, um, we had my friend Dushka Zapata on recently and, and she's this amazing author. And one of the things we were talking about, she made this comment that I'd never quite thought about in this way. And it was in the context of younger people experiencing grief and feelings uh, much more potently. And she said, part of the reason for that is when you're young and you experience grief or heartache or whatever it is, or even love, um, you're experiencing this emotion for the first time and it feels very potent and sometimes emotions are very potent, but because you have no context for it, because this is probably the first time you're experiencing this or certainly one of the first times, you don't know if this is going to go on forever. You don't know on a scale of one to 10, is this a 12? Is this a two? You're just having this feeling. And one yep. of the interesting things I hear you say is um, at your level, with your experience, what I hear you saying is you help entrepreneurs put into context, right? You've been to the show before. Yes. And survived it. I think that's the other thing is just, you know, hey, if nothing else, by my sheer age, you can tell I have survived a lot of stuff. And I think that a lot of times people, you want entrepreneurs who are really motivated and driven and dedicated but we all have to remember that we are people first and we are our jobs for lack of a better way to put it second. And that human condition is really important that when, when something happens and, and an entrepreneur needs, needs to go be with their loved one or needs to go deal with a sick child or needs to go even sometimes just get some space and, and the mental rest for a little while from, from the intensity of what they do we all need to remember our humanity first. And ultimately, I think that makes, I, that makes us better at what we do. Because at the end of the day, so much of what we do is dealing with other people. Right? I mean, it, it really is. Uh, sort of you know, talk to each other for a living. It's kind of what we do. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I'm one of my, I, I, am, I, am, I am a master at stating the obvious. And one of the things I say to entrepreneurs all the time, inevitably, inevitably, the biggest issues that entrepreneurs have are people issues. But you can't do this without people. And so, you know, you'd be sitting around, you'd be talking about some big blow up that happened, or, you know, you had to fire somebody or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, people, they're so damn messy. And then we laugh, you know, it's like, because we are, we're complex and we're messy and we're driven by different things and we have different skills to bring to the table and we have different stuff going on in the rest of our life that impacts what happens when we show up at, at work. And that is both the challenge and the beauty of, of what we, what we do all day long. So, yeah. you know, but, but keeping in mind, I mean, I think it's like those, you know, those insurance come commercials and this is a pity because I should know the name of the insurance company, but they have the, you know, the dog that, that swims through the house and they have the tree that crashes through and they say like something like, we know how to deal with a lot because we, we've seen it all. We've seen a lot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there, you know, when, when you've been doing this for as long as I have, you've seen a lot. And the good news is sometimes you've actually seen something where you say, Oh my God, I've seen this movie before. And here's, here's how I think you can modify the ending so that you don't end up like, like those guys. Yes. Um, and, and so I think that that can be very helpful. And I think also it gives you that ability to say, Hey, we'll survive. You know, we will. And sometimes things don't survive. And even when companies don't survive, people can still survive and people can still go on and do great things. And so that is, you know, it, it's, it's at the same, you know, 
I can hold these two thoughts in my head. On the one hand, I take what I do and I take what entrepreneurs do very, very seriously. On the other hand, I don't take anything too seriously. Yes. Yes. Uh, isn't that a, it's a wonderful dichotomy and it's so true. Yeah. Now I'm curious to ask you, and um, you know, you let me know where you want to go. Um, your firm's been through a lot of change over the last couple yes, of years. Yes, we have. Yes. And uh, you recently did a pretty big rebrand, which is a yep. fairly unusual thing in the venture capital world. I mean, it happens, yep. but it's not yep. maybe as uh, no normal or, or frequent as it is in some other areas. Yep. So um, tell me a little bit about what's going on and, <laughs> and uh, rebrand and, and where well, things are at. <laughs> well, we are now Threshold Ventures. We're really excited about that. It is, uh, you know, a hundred percent of the team that was, you know, last month known as DFJ Venture is now Threshold Ventures. There is still, uh, you know, there is still another fund called DFJ Growth. They are our good buddies and we cohabitate in the same office and they will maintain their name as DFJ Growth. But we are now Threshold Ventures. And I think it just, you know, it came about because we'd had, a, you know, DFJ is a storied firm that's had a tremendous amount of success um, some some really great team members in the past and 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 a whole bunch of us who are still there and we just decided that it was time for a change and for a firm name that better reflected the group of people who remained and so we made a change and you know when you're renaming a venture firm you have your choice of let's see rocks, trees, um, aspirational words. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, you know, I think, I actually think it's a great name. You know, we, 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 Josh and Emily and Andreas, I, I don't know which of the three of them, but they were brainstorming about it. And they came up with the idea, you know, this idea of the threshold effect. Um, the idea being that sometimes there's a threshold effect to something, which is you put, you put something in, you put something in, you put something in, and, and you don't see the progress, and then one day you see progress. I mean, the easiest way, the easiest way to liken this to is something like ice melting, right? It doesn't melt at, at uh, you know, it doesn't melt at 28 degrees, and the next day you put it at 29, it doesn't melt, and the next day you up it to 30, it doesn't melt, and the next day you up it to 31, it doesn't melt, and the next day you up to 32, and all of a sudden you have a big puddle of water. And, and so I think in a lot of the, in, the entrepreneurial endeavors, they exhibit this threshold they manifest this threshold effect and i think that one of the keys about being a good investor is understanding what are those threshold moments going to be and how can you again how can you either alter the trajectory so that it is more rapid or how can you at least identify when conditions are such that a threshold effect is near and so you know we like the name yeah it's and, cool you know sounds strong and yeah it, it, it i think it's i think it's uh, uh, accurate for a lot of personal endeavors. You know, I, I'm a surfer. I learned to l surf later in life. And essentially, it felt very profoundly that I sucked horribly for the better <laughs> part of five years. Yeah. <laughs> and then, look, I'm not a great surfer. I never will be, but I'm a strong intermediate surfer. And, and one day I realized, well, hey, fuck, you don't suck anymore, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, okay, I mean, well, like anything. You kind of surf now. You make these things. I, I, my, both my daughter and I picked up um, uh, glassworking about three years ago as a hobby, close to four years ago now, doing um, kiln-worked glass. And, you know, when you first start, you don't really know what you're doing and you break a lot of pieces and they blow up in the kiln or they come out looking like crap or whatever. And then you keep doing it and you keep doing it. And at some point you realize, wow, my stuff's pretty good at this point. And along those along that journey you had those threshold moments or breakthrough moments where suddenly you realized oh this works this way or this works that way or if i set the kiln at this temperature i get a different result or uh, these two colors in combination create a very pleasing effect or you know or you come up with creative solutions as to how to how to um, i made this giant chandelier and i was trying to figure out how to create leaves it's a chandelier of leaves and i was trying to create i wanted to understand how to organically shape the leaves but of course the leaves are inside the kiln when they're shaping and i can't have access to them and so i finally figured out that if i if i set them on top of r river rock 
that because river rock is organically shaped itself and the leaves would naturally slump onto the river rock, the leaves would end up the shapes of the rocks, which were or more organic than any kind of a store-bought shaping mold I could come up with. And so you have these moments and you try it. Wow, and that, was, that was mesmerizing what you just yeah, explained. Yeah, it was cool. It was fun. What? No, that, wow, that's very cool. Yeah, so, you know, we have, we have our moments. Yes. Well, and speaking of moments, I, I uh, you went through a very big sort of public change. Uh, and I got to believe there are some challenging moments in that. Um, how did you think about tackling, you know, a pretty public challenging moment in, in your career as well as the life of the firm? Well, I think that, um, I mean, I can, I can speak generically to this. <laughs> I can't speak specifically to this. Yeah, and I, as you I, can tell, I don't want you to go anywhere you can't yeah. or go. But, no, but it, look, it is an I amazing thing you've been through over the last couple of years. I think that we all, you know, we are, te we are all tested and we all face situations in our lives. And sometimes you face them as an individual and sometimes you face them as a group. And sometimes they're very public and some, and, and there's a lot of gray in things that are faced. I mean, most situations are not completely black and white. There is a lot of gray zone that one has to go through. And I think that what you have to try to do is, is do the right thing. And that sounds again, like so Hallmark greeting card, but I think that this idea of just, I, and, and I say this, and I'll just say this across everything I do. This is not any, you know, not about the changes to the firm or, or anything like that. It's just everything I do. I like to go to bed at night knowing I did my best and I did what I consider to be the right thing. And, and that takes thought and takes introspection. Sometimes it takes gathering more data. Sometimes, and, and again, the right thing is not like it's this shining single idea that you have to go find. There's, there's all sorts of right things and right things change over time. And, and, and I think that to me, the most important thing is, did I, on, did I live true to myself in anything that I do? Am I doing the right thing? And, and, you know, I have personal objectives across the board for, I like to be respectful to people. I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Now it doesn't mean that sometimes I don't deliver tough news, but I try to be the person that people want to call for advice because they know I'm going to be really helpful and I'm going to keep their things confidential if they need to talk about something confidential. And I just want to be a good person and I feel better when I'm a good person. So maybe it's a totally selfish thing that I just want to be a good person. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I think that firms and entities and groups of people go through change all the time. And I think it's a real gift when you find a like-minded group of people where you can all do wonderful things together and feel really good about working together. And, you know, again, I'm very lucky to be, uh, you know, at threshold with the partners I have because it's really, truly a joy to go to work every day. Well, and I, I got to tell you, Heidi, you know, somebody who's been in the industry for 30 years and um, known of you for a very long time and, and seen you from afar. Um, it struck me when all that stuff was going down. Let me say it this way. Based on what I knew of your reputation, I would have a hard time believing that anybody in our industry didn't think that you weren't trying to do the right thing and be open and communicative and tackle the, you know, tackle what needed to get tackled head on. That's the reputation that you have. That's my interpretation. Well, thank you. And, and, you know, my, my feeling about reputation, I mean, it's interesting. I, I teach this course at Stanford and for a while it was, it was people talked about personal brand, right? What's your personal brand? And uh, I think there was even a, some jokes on TV about that, but uh to me, what is a brand? A brand is a promise of consistency. And, you know, like you go to Starbucks and you know, even if you're at a Starbucks in Scotland, that it's going to look a certain way and there are going to be certain things on the menu and the baristas are going to kind of act a certain way and there's probably going to be a lot of wood tones and green white uh, cups. And, you know, it's a promise of consistency. And that's why people shop at 
places is, is consistency. And I think that to me, again, I don't think, I don't love the expression personal brand, but I think that consistency of who you are and how you show up, it helps people get you. It helps you get other people. It helps people know what to expect from you. And I think, I mean, just think in your own life, those people who are highly inconsistent, they make you uncomfortable, right? They make you feel like I can't depend on that person. You know, sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they keep a secret. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're hostile. Sometimes they're not hostile. I personally strive to be cons not only be consistent to my values, be consistent to what I think is important in how I prosecute my life. And, and by the way, I, you know, to me, personal life and business life, it's all the same. I'm the same person, whether I am at work or at home or playing with my dog. And, and I, it's the same. Like, why would I be a different person in one context versus another I love context? you for saying that. This whole bullshit about you have a professional life and you have a personal life and, oh, it's not personal. It's just business and all that. F you, it's all personal. That's yeah, well, it is. And I mean, these days, I mean, this is the interesting thing, of course, is people's personal lives, anyone who is in any form of social media, your personal life is open to inspection. And so for you to think that, that for example, people put stuff on personal, on social media and expect that somehow that's not going to impact what people they work with think, that is a very naive view. And so I think, you know, again, the, the, best, the best way to be is if you're true to who you are, then you don't have to worry about that stuff. And, and there are certain things, for example, you know, if you look at my social media, I don't post very often. I post pictures of my dog, which is pretty non-controversial. I don't post things about religion or politics because I just don't, that's, that's not what I want to put out there. But for example, I have a a transgender child. And so I've posted stuff about, about that going through, um, you know, raising a transgender child. And perhaps some people, uh, maybe some people read that and think, well, I'm, they don't like me because of that. And I'm fine with people not liking me because of that. If they don't want to accept me because of my transgender child, well, that's perfectly okay with me. So, but I do think that this idea that there's a wall between your personal life and your work life, especially in the kind of work that, that I do, that, that we do is um, it's proving not, let's just say it's proving not to be true. And there are lots and lots of examples of that. Well, and that sort of leads me to an interesting question. I mean, you were a very public person pre-social media. Uh, I've been around long enough to know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously, I, I mean, I, I, you tell me I, if you feel like your profile is higher or lower or whatever, but you've been a public person in our world, in the business world, in the venture world, in the startup world for many years, for decades. And of course, today that gets multiplied because of social media. Mm -hmm. and so, um, you know, I mean, how do you think about conducting yourself as somebody who is very public and frankly has been for a very long time, you are considered a leader. Uh, you're out in front on a lot of issues, entrepreneurial issues, venture capital issues. Of course, you've been incredibly outspoken about women in venture capital, women in entrepreneurship and, and other things. And so how do you think about sort of being public at that, at that level? Well, first of all, I'm not, you know, I'm not that important. I don't think that people, you know, wait on every word that I say or follow my, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't put myself up there. Well, I ain't no Kardashian. It's, it's Let's put it that Oprah, way. Right? But, <laughs> but, but, but here's a, no, but in our world, you're a very, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a, I am a, uh, you know, I, I'm in the, I am the, I'm the Snooki of, uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, I, how do I think of that? I, I, first of all, I mean, the thing about social media, the thing about pre-social media is there was still some control to sort of where it landed. And in the era of social media, there is no control about where things land. And you, if one person sees it, it could be on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow, right? And so 
I think that first of all, I am just aware that anything I post to social media, I should expect that the whole world will be aware of it and of my having put it out there or said it. I also don't think that my life is, uh, you know, I don't post what I had for lunch. I don't post the beautiful, you know, I jokingly call it lifestyle of the rich and famous, right? I mean, I'm not going to post like, here I am at this fabulous place with my fabulous friends because I don't know, maybe I'm just old and I don't need, I don't want to do that. It's not, it's not, um, it's not important to me. And so I, I'm not, uh, I don't know. I, I, there are, and if people want to post that and they want to do that and they want to post what they had for lunch and all that, that's perfectly fine with me. You know, you, you do you, I'll do me. Uh, but for me, I'm going to, I don't do things on social media unless I am both a very comfortable doing it, very comfortable that if it was on the front page of the New York times tomorrow, I'd be okay with that and be okay, I posted a picture of my rescue dogs because they're freaking cute and it was International Dog Day. And hey, I fall victim to that every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's, 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 um, it's fascinating to see how you, kind of, uh, how you kind of manage yourself as a, at least a high profile person in our industry, for sure. Well, and I do think, for example, I, I talk about the fact that there should be more women entrepreneurs and there should be more women venture capitalists. And I support and and diversity not just gender diversity but other diversity and i try to support that through my actions and i think it's appropriate given my role in in silicon valley that if i have an opinion about that i should be vocal about that and and therefore and more important than being vocal i should act in that manner right <laughs> and so it's one thing to talk about it it's another thing to just go do it and so I'm a big believer in sort of the, you know, whatever it is, think globally, act locally, right? If all of us in positions of, of power, however you want to, to define that, understand that there is an imbalance and we, you know, take that extra meeting with a female entrepreneur or we, we you know, do a session today. I mean, I met with an emerging um, woman venture capitalist today just to kind of kick ideas around about advice of, of how to put her fund together. You know, those are the kinds of things that you pay it forward. You do it with no personal gain that you expect because it, it is, again, the right, the right thing to do according to my model of what the right thing to do is. Well, and I think, you know, it's been my experience and I'm, listen, I'm somebody who came here with you know, no experience in Silicon Valley and no education. And I didn't graduate Stanford. I got thrown out of high school and, uh, <laughs> and so forth. And it's worked out for you though. <laughs> well, as I made my way, you know, I sort of had, you got to prove yourself in the beginning. In the beginning, I wouldn't say Silicon Valley was particularly welcoming. Um, but once you sort of prove a little bit of your metal, then things open up. At least that was my experience. But, but to your exact point on this it is uncanny the number of successful people in Silicon Valley who feel this way. I mean, you know, we, we just had Eric Yuan on the podcast, the founder of Zoom. And mm -hmm. I asked him about the new demands on his time now that they're public, whether it's dealing with the, you know, public investors or the fact that he's, you know, way higher profile today than he was even just a couple of years ago. And so I know what that means. He gets invited to all these super ding dong events and things and he gets, mm -hmm. his attention is being pulled in all these directions and he you know he's he's incredibly affable and he sort of said I don't pay attention to the vast majority of that stuff but the one thing I do let sort of pull my time is things that are about supporting and lifting up up-and-coming entrepreneurs that's great that's great that's wonderful and, and I see that I've seen that my entire career in Silicon Valley so I guess that leads me to a question you know there's been a lot of talk about Silicon Valley whether it's been about the me too stuff and, and then the number of female entrepreneurs or, or whether it's been about some of the, um, I would call it spooky Darth Vader-y behavior of some <laughs> of our companies around privacy and some other issues uh, and, and, and the backlash against the bro culture. And there's been a lot of negative PR about Silicon Valley. Some of it, I think, well-earned. Yeah. Um, but I also think a lot of the positives about Silicon Valley have been lost. But anyway, that to the side, I'm curious how you think about wh where we are as a 
if, if, if you will, as an ecosystem, the, the, the entrepreneurs, the, the venture capitalists, you're deeply connected with Stanford and have been for a long time. They're such a huge part of it. And so you sit at this, this incredible place with this incredible experience. And so how does Silicon Valley look to you today? Overall, pretty good. I mean, I, I actually think it's wonderful that at least we're talking about this stuff. And, and I think that, again, we're being, I think we've brought a lot of good to the world. I think that there are a lot of good things about social media. I think there are a lot of great things about technology. I think that the pervasive amount of, of information and knowledge that is now available to people at, at all different socioeconomic levels, I think there is a lot that is very positive. And I, and I do think it's interesting while everybody's bitching and moaning about, about how evil Silicon Valley is, I'm pretty sure they're still using Facebook and Google and Twitter and you know they're tweeting about how evil we are while they post it to Facebook and Google to make sure they've spelled it all right. Uh, you know, so I mean, right, right, right. So, I mean, I think the problem is there are both unintended negative consequences of some of this and there are intended, <coughs> there are bad actors and then there are just unintended consequences. And I, well, think, the funniest I actually thing is, think the bad actorism for the amount of good uh, that has yes, been yeah, created, person, like, the actual okay, bad actorism in the valley is pretty low. I think Most that there are the unintended consequences. And I think that the challenge we're facing, particularly as we start to get into the realm of, for example, AI, um, is that if you don't think through those unintended consequences, Again, the, the, the effect can be very rapid. Um, for example, I was just at this event at Stanford last night um, put on by um, um, Stanford High, HAI, the Center for um, Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence, where they're trying to make sure that, that it's, a, it's kind of a, a cross-industrial, campus-wide, and industry group that's trying to make sure that as we go into all these fields of artificial intelligence, that, that we're doing it with the benefit of humanity in mind. And uh, there is a little bit of joking. Right now, it's the benefit of sort of advertising in mind. But eventually, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll apply it to things like medicine and stuff like that. No, we are already applying it to things like medicine. But, you know, long story short, there, there are concerns. For example, if you ingest a lot of data and data is biased, you will create AI that is biased. And so... You know, for example, you have to understand that. You have to understand what, that, what, what happens when you put these systems in place. If you put a super sophisticated AI system in place and, and no one can explain how it got the answer it got, you may inherently be creating some issues in there. So being able to understand not only what is the answer, but how the answer was derived and where there might be faults in the system is very important. And so I... I'm actually very encouraged that we are talking about this kind of stuff that places like Stanford are, and, and, this is, and the Stanford effort is in conjunction with, with wonderful industry leaders like Reid Hoffman, um, Eric Schmidt, you know, I mean, these are people that are involved in this organization. I'm happy we're talking about it. I'm happy we're thinking about it. I recognize, you know, it's, it's a sober reality that, mistakes are going to be made and things are going to happen. But, you know, here's a, let me, let me add another sobering thing on that. If we as the United States decide, well, since we can't control the unintended consequences, we just won't do this stuff. You know, if we decide we don't want to have, um, you know, for example, robotics, well, then I'm pretty sure China and Germany and other places are still going to have robotics. And, and I mean, it was an interesting comment, actually, Reed Hoffman said this last night at this, at this Stanford presentation, that most of the world today gets its information from a, on browsers that are all controlled by a small number of companies on the West Coast of the United States. Would you rather it be a small number of companies based in Beijing? You know, so, so it is an interesting, I know where I, I mean, would rather they come. I mean, you could yeah. argue more diversity and it should be this and it should be that. And it's bad that it's Google and it's Facebook or whatever. Okay, great. I got to And those companies deserve a lot of scrutiny because of the power. They yes. Have. 
But at the same point, yeah, I want him on our team. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me too. Me too. It is an interesting insight for sure. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing, and I don't want to get political, but one of the disappointments, at least so far, in the political debate in our country is um, you know, there's not much talk about entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. There's not much talk about technology innovation. There's not much talk about, to your point off the top, Heidi, about all the, incre- I mean, if you and I were to list all the incredible breakthrough things that are emerging today from, you know, the cloud to IoT to robotics to AR and VR and 3D printing and genomics and, you know, all the stuff that's, I mean, it's a long, long list just to list out all the big breakthrough things. This wasn't true 30 years ago. I mean, there was cool Mm -hmm. shit going on, but the list today makes the list 10, 20 years ago look like nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so my point is, where's our national strategy on technology innovation and leadership? You know, Putin's come out and said they want to dominate the world through AI. He's made that statement, right? (laughs) Where's our national strategy on some of these things? And, and more importantly, to your point, where's the debate on entrepreneurship, innovation, all these forward leaning technologies, some of which we definitely do, I think need a national strategy on how we're going to deal with AI and robotics and this, and there's societal impacts that we need to deal with. And there's discussions about UBIs and this and that. And like, I don't know where all this stuff needs yeah, to go. I mean, I, 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 I share your concern. And as I said earlier, I don't generally talk about politics, but I'll say this. I think that the United States has proven itself to be the best innovation engine the world has ever seen. And I think that that is evidenced by, you know, the success of these companies. By the way, the success of these companies, a quarter of which were founded by first generation or zero generation immigrants, right? And, and, and so we have been the place that has allowed for company formation and innovation because of our, both of our protective laws around um, IP, as well as the availability of, of venture capital and, and the ecosystem here that allows company formation and growth to happen. So fortunately for us, that, that engine is running really well. And while it is disappointing that the government, and I say the government by and large, I actually think there are a whole bunch of areas within the government where government people are deeply engaged in this, and in fact, um, last night's event at Stanford had had uh, was was a, a government included event, and there were probably probably a third of the audience was related to the government in some way. So actually, they are there. We're all just getting on with business, and the fact that these are not the issues on the national presidential platform, you know, I'm okay with that as long as the rest of us keep working on it. <laughs> as long as we keep doing the real work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't change how I, I don't get up every morning and say, I wonder if the president thinks I'm making the right investments. <laughs> Regardless of who the president <laughs> is. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, Heidi, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, I, this has been so much fun. I mean, this just flew by. It was great fun. You asked fabulous questions. So uh, uh, hopefully I haven't, uh, haven't stumbled too badly here today. <laughs> Heidi, you've been wonderful. And you're welcome back anytime. I would love to have you back. I, I, uh, your career has been extraordinary. And, uh, you know, I just uh, really appreciate how generous you are with your, uh, with your experience and, and, and as importantly, your insights as to where we are and where we're going. Well, thank you. It's been such a pleasure. I appreciate all you've done. And I would definitely love to come back. Thank you, Heidi. Stay legendary, my friend. (laughs) All right. Thanks a bunch. Well, there she is, Heidi Roizen. And uh, I'm sure glad that uh, she was able to spend this time with me. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Um, All right. We would like to thank the incredible Heidi Roizen. You can check her out at HeidiRoizen.com. Play Bigger. How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. Check it out wherever you get legendary books. That's my first book called Play Bigger. Um, Now, is it time to scale yourself? Uh, Maybe it's time you look into the power of a virtual assistant with my friends at Bottleneck Online. Check them out at bottleneck.online today. And 
Are you in the B2B tech business? If so, your website is your face to the world. It's often the first thing people see, experience, and consume about your company. So it should be legendary. Check out my friends at Atranet, building B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. That's A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. And uh, one of my favorite podcasts, The Brutal Truth About Sales and Selling, with our friend and guest on episode 50, Brian Burns. Check it out. And the incredible Habitat for Humanity. Habitat's vision is of a world where everyone has a decent place to live. To make a difference, check them out at habitat.org. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast is created in a studio that does contain nuts. It is produced by the incredible Jamie J. and Sarah Parrish. Edited by the incomparable Mike D. And show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to teach kids entrepreneurship. Buy John's crazy socks. Always try to conserve water and shower with a, di- uh, a friend. A dend? I don't know what a dend is. <laughs> Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Dennis. <laughs> Dennis Mullenberg, CEO of Boeing. Sorry, Dennis. We just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Stay legendary. And of course, follow your difference. <laughs>